I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Ted Burnham. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, May 17th, 2011. Coming up, the future of spaceflight may not be so far in the future. We'll hear about commercial public access to space from Alan Stern. I'll bet that people in the distant future look back and say, this is where Star Trek began. And Elon Musk. I think we'll start to see companies start developing technologies for creating sustainable civilization on Mars as soon as they're confident that, that the transport system will get them there. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. It's no surprise that neglect and social deprivation are bad for children. Studies of institutionalized children in Romania, for instance, have shown that poor conditions correlate with lower IQ and behavioral problems. But what is surprising is that those same conditions also cause premature aging on a genetic level. Researchers at Children's Hospital Boston and Tulane University performed genetic tests on children who spent their early childhood in Romanian institutions. They found that children who spent more time under adverse conditions had gene damage in the form of shortened telomeres. Telomeres are the sections at the tips of our chromosomes and protect the rest of our genes from damage. Telomeres tend to decrease in length as we age, losing some of their protective effect. Previous studies of adults have shown that prematurely shortened telomeres are correlated with adverse conditions in childhood and have associated this effect with cognitive defects and increased risk of heart disease and cancer. But it's unknown what biological effect telomere shortening will have in young children. Researchers will continue to study the phenomenon to see if telomere length recovers in children who are moved to foster care. Romanian orphanages are notorious for their poor treatment of children, but have been improving. Thanks to studies like this one, the government has banned institutionalization for children under two and is placing more children of all ages in foster care. The results were published online last week in Molecular Psychiatry. How can you figure out whether a community is rich or poor, even in remote places scattered throughout the world? That's a question that has vexed economists, but the answer may be surprisingly simple. Wait until it's dark, then take a picture. If there's plenty of nighttime light, that community is probably prosperous. To figure this out, Yale researchers Shi Chen and William Nordhaus collected satellite measures of nighttime luminosity and linked the data to regions with a reasonable amount of statistical reporting about their gross domestic product. After they got those correlations firmed up, the researchers turned the bright beam of their research toward countries that have little to no statistical reporting, such as Iraq, Algeria, Libya, and Haiti. They conclude that nighttime luminosity measures for these developing nations can be a good proxy for the lack of proper data. Interestingly, the scientists warn that measuring the brightness of the United States or Europe doesn't tell anyone very much. That's because on a worldwide scale, all those first world countries are already pretty prosperous. What's more, at night, they're all awfully bright. Last but not least, this month you can go to a second Denver Cafe Psy. It will take place next Monday at a place called Brooklyn's, which is near the Pepsi Center and just across from the Auraria campus. 
The Café Sai will start at 6.30 p.m. As for why there's a second Café Sai, it turns out that it has become so popular some people in Denver wanted another, preferably less crowded, option. The speaker next Monday will be Russ Schnell from the Global Monitoring Division of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. His topic will be, The Air You Breathe, It Ain't What It Used To Be. As the last two shuttle flights are scheduled for this year, NASA approaches an end of an era of regular human access to space. When the shuttles are retired by this summer, and since any NASA-developed next-generation manned rockets are probably at least a decade away, the only way U.S. astronauts can fly to and from the International Space Station will be by way of the Russian space program. During a period of economic struggle, there may not be much public or political will to pay for a large manned space program. So could private companies fill this gap, developing their own manned spacecraft? Is there enough or even any business demand to make it economically feasible, considering the costs to make it reliable and safe? The answer may not only be yes— but several companies may be closer to that goal than you think. At a recent meeting at the University of Colorado's Boulder campus, two speakers outlined their vision and the reality of the next epic of space flight. Alan Stern from Southwest Research Institute and former NASA Associate Administrator, and Elon Musk, founder of SpaceX, makers of the Falcon 9, PayPal, and Tesla Motors, discussed the future of commercial spaceflight. Shelley Schlender was there to record their talks and the question and answers that followed. Tonight we have Alan Stern. I am really impressed that so many people turned out in Little Boulder, Colorado on a Friday night. I couldn't believe that we were overflow crowd as of two, three weeks ago, and this was going to get piped into other rooms. Uh, and then I started understanding it because I started getting Facebook and Twitter uh, messages from people asking if Elon was actually bringing one of those gorgeous new S-types from Tesla to park out front of the math building. So we'll go see. Uh, but I'm going to talk to you about commercial space flight and hopefully give you a bit of a 101 to give you some background on some of the exciting things that are taking place. It's really a public access revolution. And I have to ask a question to start. If I could see a show of hands, how many people in this room have wanted to travel in space? Look at that. All right, this is great. I have wanted to travel in space since I was a little boy. I always wanted to be a scientist, and I always wanted to travel in space. So far, it hasn't worked out. I've had a great chance to do some interesting things. Thank you again, Yvonne. Um, Never had an opportunity like I have to lead the exploration to the very frontier of the solar system with New Horizons. And there I am in front of uh, the spacecraft right before we got it launched in 2006. Uh, 2,500 people worked on New Horizons for five years straight. We are more than two-thirds of the way to Pluto by miles, and we are in great shape, and we are going to blow your doors off in 2015. 
Um, I got to do a lot of interesting things along the way in my career. I spent uh, part of a summer down at South Pole doing astronomical research. I spent uh, five years flying high-performance jets doing uh, high-altitude astronomy. But I really always wanted to fly in space, even when I was a kid. Between the time that I was a boy and we went from not having a human spaceflight capability to having people walk on the moon in a very short period of time. It didn't seem that way at the time, but you know, if you were there and you got to live it as a child, you thought that anything was possible. All the doors were open and that we were really going somewhere. And in fact, in the late 1960s, when I was a boy, my grandparents were still alive and they were born at the time of the first airplanes. You know, by comparison, that, that was only 60, 65 years in the past, sort of like reaching back now to the 1950s, quite a ways. But there were lots of people walking around who didn't, who, who remembered before airplanes. And in that single span of two generations, we saw the birth of an airline industry and parcel post and, and cargo transport with airplanes very rapidly after the airplane was invented. And we saw passenger travel come along. Within a space of just 40 years, we went from those primitive airplanes to very sophisticated platforms that operate very much like we do today. Yes, there are differences. We're a lot cleaner, more fuel efficient. The avionics are different. But very much from a functional standpoint, in, in the blink of an eye almost by societal standards, we went from uh, no airplanes at all to ubiquitous air travel. That has not happened in spaceflight, but at the time, in the 1960s, in early 1970s, it gave you the feeling that anything was possible. And it was perfectly reasonable to expect to grow up and spend your career not just in the space business, but in space. And at that time, in the late 1960s, uh, there were motion pictures like 2001, A Space Odyssey, and it was expected that by then we would have bases on the moon and expeditions to Jupiter, and Mars and beyond, and it seemed perfectly reasonable because the, the pace of progress was so fast. And of course, it was perfectly reasonable to believe the science fiction because when I was growing up, young men my father's age were walking on the moon. It was unbelievable to see it happen on your television. Real expeditions, not just standing there picking up a rock, planting a flag and coming back, but bringing along uh, the capability to stay for days uh, rovers that would allow you to traverse over large distances, very sophisticated scientific equipment that was left behind to operate for years. It was really something. And every few months, expeditions would travel to the moon. It was exhilarating to live in that time, but you know, there was one little problem. The politics got in the way. And in fact, at the end of the first few Apollo expeditions, the political establishment decided we should get out of that line of work. And so we took apart, we dismantled an amazing capability, really a 21st century capability. We took it apart and we destroyed the tooling and we have, for the past 40 years, been stuck in low Earth orbit. When you get big committees and too many cooks in a kitchen, you oftentimes uh, get vehicles and programs that are designed non-optimally. They cost a lot more than they need to, that have very large political considerations like which jobs should go in which zip codes, that make design compromises based on politics, that sacrifice operational utility for upfront development costs. And so Apollo was turned off in 1972. 
And with the end of Apollo, the same crowd got involved in designing what would be next, uh, the, the space shuttle, a transportation system to low Earth orbit. And that is one amazing vehicle. I will tell you, I've been around space shuttles. I've been a principal investigator on them. Um, I was very close to flying on, uh, on one mission as a payload specialist I was selected for. It is an amazing piece of aerospace technology. Uh, but we have been flying it for 40 years, and it can't get us very far. You know, the space shuttle only flies a few hundred miles above the Earth. The moon is a quarter million miles, 240,000 miles away. That's it. That's what we've been doing the last 40 years. Now, yes, we have also, with a lot of help, built a fantastic space station that houses six people. Okay, not quite like 2001, a space odyssey, but an amazing technological achievement. Cost about $100 billion. Uh, the space shuttle program over time has cost about $200 billion. So we have ex expended a lot of the taxpayers, our treasure, on these systems. They are all we have, and we are now stopping the space shuttle program. And I'm not going to talk about the pros or cons of that. In fact, there are pros. There are also some cons. I happen to think that the pros outweigh the cons. But really, we have had for 40 years, since the end of Apollo, a very politically driven, centrally managed, something like Soviet-style, centrally planned space effort. And there was only one route to space for human spaceflight, and that was through the doors of NASA. And that is now changing. And it is a revolution that is so broad and so deep that I think it's, it's hardly imagined. It's as if you were in 1975 and you heard that people were starting to build personal computers. Right? And you don't even know why you need one in the house. Because I don't do that much computing. Right? And I don't keep that many files. I think the most important thing that happened in spaceflight since the moon landings came in 2004 when Bert Rutan and his team at Scale Composites won something called the X Prize. The Ansari X Prize was a $10 million chest offered to any private company that could repeatedly fly human beings to space and back to at least 100 kilometers, the so-called Kármán line, which is the official boundary of space, and to do that on a repeatable basis. And Bert Rutan, the genius that he is, invented, built, tested, and flew this pair of craft that won the Ansari X Prize in 2004 for $30 million. There's never been anything like it. I have built, I don't know how many spectrometers and imagers for spaceflight, and some of my little box-sized spectrometers cost $30 million. Bert created a revolution. He created a human spaceflight capability on that kind of money. And it really shook people up. But it also really stirred people. Let's talk about one of Elon's companies, SpaceX. Elon's company is building transportation systems and vehicles to fly people back and forth to space and through space. These Falcon rockets, which SpaceX, Elon's company, has conceived, designed, proved by trial through fire, and made work, are some of the most impressive aerospace vehicles of my lifetime. And with them are the Dragon space capsules that they have also now inaugurated with a completely successful first flight last December. Now, these aren't just drawings. These vehicles are so capable 
and the engineering so sound that NASA has contracted these vehicles to fly back and forth to the space station to provide consumables and other types of cargo transport that the space station cannot survive without. And so these guys have gone from a very small company, a handful of people, at the beginning of the last decade, to I believe over 1,200 engineers, scientists, technicians, uh, and many other kinds of talent, and created their own space program. And the US government is now invested in it. But in addition, they are off-selling rocket launches to communication satellite companies. A company called Iridium that's going to be launching over 70 satellites just bought their entire launch system on Falcon. If that's not a vote of confidence, I don't know what is. This is really an amazing capability. This is the Ares-1 rocket that NASA recently tested after many years of development. And about $10 billion uh, went into that first test flight. Everything that w went from uh, conception through that first test flight. SpaceX conceived, designed, flew their first Falcon flight for much less money, a few hundred million dollars. How's that for a revolution? Now, Elon's not al alone in this. There's a lot of competition and competition rocks. Here you see two of the competitors to Dragon. One is called Dream Chaser, and it's to be built right here in Colorado, out in Louisville, by Sierra Nevada Corporation. And NASA's also investing in that for design studies to, to transport crew back and forth to the space station. We've always had one system to go back and forth. We had Gemini, we traded it for Apollo. We had Apollo, we traded it for shuttle. And when shuttle goes away, we fly on Russian rockets until these vehicles come online. And then we're going to have multiple ways to access space and at these breakthrough price points, which is going to change the equation of access. Um, Zero-G Corporation will sell you zero-G parabolas. You go out and spend a, a morning or an afternoon flying in zero-G, just like these happy people. And you could do it for really reasonable prices like any other vacation, not astronomical prices. And I can attest to that. Because my own family, we flew on July 4th last year. Those are three of my kids with me upside down flying on a zero-G flight. They are a blast, and they are very educational. And if you have any questions about it, afterwards you can ask me, or you can ask Sarah or Jordan or Carol, who also flew on that flight, or you can ask Cindy and Khan, who flew on a Southwest Research training flight. You don't have to wait until the prices come down or until your bank account goes up to afford a hundred dollars or $200,000 ticket. So let me turn to the conclusion of my talk. And you remember when I was talking about how the capability in air transport progressed so rapidly. And the airplanes of the 1920s were very primitive vehicles compared to the 1960s. Because there were a lot of airlines and there were a lot of innovators. You know, in the early aerospace industry, people like the Lockheeds and the Hughes and the Davises, they were really entrepreneurs. We haven't seen that in a long time, although we're starting to see it again. And I'm hoping Alon's interested in that kind of thing because his company is probably the leading aerospace company, the most innovative, the most successful, the most forward-looking. You've got something good. And I expect that private industry will take us to Mars. I hope that we'll beat the Chinese and the Russians through private industry. What could top that? And I'll bet, although I'll never live to see it, that people in the distant future look back and say, this is where Star Trek began. Thank you very much.
Thank you very much. What an excellent talk. And now we're going to go from suborbital up to orbital. And I'm very excited to introduce our next speaker to you as well. Elon Musk. I'm definitely much more interested in Mars than the moon. The moon is a lot like the Arctic coming to America from Europe. It's not like people established a base in the Arctic or sort of practice going to Europe by first going to the Arctic. Um, <laughs> Mars is a real planet, and it's got lots of resources. You know, it's water almost everywhere. The red color is iron oxide. really possible for us to make a self-sustaining civilization on, on Mars, and so that's, that's the focus. Of course, we will take people to the moon if they wish to go to the moon. Uh, <laughs> we're a space transport company, so um, we, we, you know, we, we uh, try, try not to make value judgments about our customers. Uh, <laughs> last mission, we, we carried a giant wheel of cheese because it is a tribute to the Monty Python cheese shop sketch. <laughs> and, and partly because a friend of mine said, uh, what can you take to space? And I said, anything. Um, and I actually said, we don't make value judgments, judgments about our customers. So he said, how about a wheel of cheese? I said, absolutely. <laughs> I do think there is this challenge of the, the initial kind of activation cost of uh, a base on Mars. Um, it's all well and good when there's a base there and enough resources to kind of get going, but in the beginning, that, that won't be the case. So I think, I think it will be kind of a public-private partnership. SpaceX has a, a huge amount that it owes to NASA for its progress to date. So I think that will probably continue. I think we'll start to see companies start developing technologies for creating sustainable civilization on Mars as soon as they, they, they're confident that, that the transport system will get them there. And so that's really what SpaceX is focused on. It's like, we want to make sure we get the, develop the transport system that can get, um, that can take people there, and then, you know, just sort of the, the way that, say, the West was, you know, before there was a railroad, there were very few people in the West, um, and people were questioning, why build the railroad to nowhere? And actually, California turned out to be, you know, a pretty big state in the end. And, uh, <laughs> And, and, and the whole West is, is, a, is a huge uh, driver of innovation. There will just be an, an explosion of, of opportunity if, if there's just a means of getting there. That was Alan Stern and Elon Musk discussing the future of commercial spaceflight. It's not quite the vision of 2001 A Space Odyssey, but we may be closer than you think. Thanks to Shelley for that report. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. This week's show was produced by Shelley Schlender, and Joel Parker was the executive producer. Tim Morton wrote our theme music. Tom Wassinger produced it. And speaking of our theme music, we are having a contest for a new How on Earth theme. If you have a submission, you can send it in at howonearthradio.org. You can also get podcasts of our show there and through iTunes. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Ted Burnham. And I'm Joel Parker.